Thanks to the Corps for having us. I'm so pleased to be here tonight, this evening. Uh, thank you, Leslie, for inviting me. Uh, you just tell me if I should speak louder. If you, if you can't hear me, tell me, okay? I can, I can project a little bit. Okay, good, good. Um, good voice, good professor voice. Okay, so uh, tonight we're going to talk about self-compassion. And uh, I, you, if you can read this here, imagine, uh, let's see if our pointer is this. I point. Imagine if we obsessed about the things we loved about ourselves. Digging out of a mess, self-compassion as a way forward. And before I start, I mean, we have a good amount of time today, and I want to sort of keep it simple for what we're going to do. Um, but I want to sort of start with a story. And this is a story about, this is a story about how I became a psychologist, but it's about why I became a psychologist. And I've been a professor here for 12 years, and, you know, I, my primary identity as as a scientist, and you don't go around talking about why you became a, sci a psychologist in scientific presentations. It's just sort of not cool. But I'm actually going to come out on it and uh, talk about this a little bit. And um, well, first of all, let me advance. And this is me. This is my back. This is my spine. Any orthopedic surgeons in the room? Okay. 1991. So, uh, uh, spring of 1991. I woke up, I was junior in high school, and I woke up and my right toes were completely numb. And, you know, I was having all this bad hamstring pain that turned out to be sciatica. And, you know, through a whole series of investigations and a long story short, I had something called spondylolithesis. And anyone know anyone else with spondylolithesis? Now you know me. Okay, so one. And spondylolithesis is a small break in your spinal column. And these are rods and screws that are holding me together. And you, this is called a lumbar spinal fusion with instrumentation. And, you know, I fought and fought having the spine surgery. And, I, you know, I struggled and struggled with what was happening to me. My entire life, every moment I remember was spent playing baseball and sports and moving my body in some way. And to deal with this and to struggle with this and to sort of go through the process of asking, why me? And I don't deserve this. And now this is not supposed to happen to me. Now, there are many worse things, of course. There are many terrible things. But this was my own personal struggle. And um, you know, summer after my freshman year in college, I finally had the surgery. So I'm going on 25 years now with the medal. It's great, really fun. Um, so, but part of the recovery process was spending nearly all of that summer after the surgery, I had it the first week after my freshman year in college, and spent nearly all of that summer on my back. And I spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about what I was going to do with my life. And that was the seed of really, you know, sort of planted in me the quest to become a psychologist, the journey to become a psychologist. And my primary question then was, how the hell do people recover from events like this? Again, mine wasn't a super traumatic event, but like, what should I do to put the pieces of my life back together? And like, how, how do I deal with all these thoughts that are going through my head? You know, uh, the struggle, the suffering that I was going through, the loss of my identity, and what is my new identity and where is it? And these things are like all the things psychologists study. So I started out um, on my journey into graduate school and even as an undergraduate trying to, you know, 
climb my way up and get into graduate school, but this forms the basis of my research program. And I started studying relationships and getting into close relationship research and um, you know, thought very much there would be a parallel in, in these kinds of questions to the study of divorce, an upheaval that many people face and most people do well in time. So what is that process? How do we put our lives back together? The notion of self-compassion wasn't really available to me. It was available to Buddhists, right, and, and people who really understood Eastern philosophy and Eastern thought. At the time, it wasn't really available to me, and you know, I didn't know about it until much later, but it really would have helped back then, and so I've sort of stumbled my way into this, and it does, to me, feel like full circle. So this is why I became a psychologist, to the best of my ability to understand. I, I'm not sure I fully understand, but this played a big role, right? And um, so that's me, in a nutshell. This is my back. Uh, let me frame up what we're going to do tonight and how we're going to spend our time. I want to define some terms a little bit. Like, what is this mess I'm talking about? You know, your mess, my mess, whose mess? Uh, what does it mean to dig out of a mess? And so I've sort of intimated what I'm talking about here, but I'll get into some of the details. Uh, then I'll define the terms that we'll be thinking about. Talk about self-compassion and uh, spend some time thinking a little bit about its history and what the various terms are. I'll talk about my studies of divorce and in particular look very closely at this role of self-compassion and uh, as a pivotal tool for coping with this upheaval, this, this social adversity, this negative life event. And you know, my, the point here is to generalize broadly, is to not say self-compassion really matters after divorce. Okay, I'm going to show you that it maybe does, but to think about this more universally for all of our difficult experiences. And then I'm going to dig a little deeper and tell you quickly about two other studies from my lab, or two other papers with the same sample, because they're also very interesting, and they're related to the idea, and they're essentially about how we over-identify with our experiences and become too attached to them. And what does that mean for how we can cope with difficult events in our lives? And this is classic clinical psychology. I'm happy to answer questions about that too. And then we'll just wrap up with a little self-compassion exercise. I'm not here to sort of help everyone elevate the level of self-compassion. That would certainly be nice. But I'm going to point you to some resources that are really good. And, and, and you know, if you're interested at all in this, then the resources are out there for you. And you can take advantage of them and run with them. Okay. This is a mess. My son's room sort of looks like this. He has Legos all over the place. If you step on a Lego with bare feet, it is like torture. So what am I talking about about a mess? Well, you know, I'm just really here talking about the full catastrophe of living. All of us in this room face difficult and trying events. 69%, so seven of 10 of us, I was going to say 69%, seven of 10 of us have experienced a relatively major stressful event, uh, a traumatic, potentially traumatic event in our lifetime. Been robbed, assaulted, sexually assaulted, been in a serious motor vehicle accident, experienced the tragic and traumatic death of someone, uh, been burglarized, I said robbed, yes, okay. Now, if you take those and you couple them with a great number of sort of everyday social adversities, like I think my boss is out to get me, my marriage is coming to an end, my partner and I fight all the time, I'm losing my job, I have lost my job, I can't find how to get to campus because it's so damn complex down there and all the undergrad, right? So these hassles build up. And just ordinary garden variety slings and arrows of everyday life 
accumulate. This is the mess I'm talking about, the mess of our lives. So the first thing is that we are all struggling with these difficult experiences. And for me, um, I guess the best way of saying it is shit happens, right? For me, the, this is one of the core, this is the essence of life. I just came from my clinical practice down um, uh, near the Rincon Market. And I have only three clients today, and every single one of them, I focused with them, uh, I mean, it was on my mind maybe tonight, but I thought it was appropriate to discuss, the difference between pain and suffering. We are all experiencing pain. Pain is everywhere, and the idea is that, you know, pain is inherent in life, and the suffering piece is optional. And the suffering piece are the thoughts we naturally, the thoughts, the beliefs, the perceptions we naturally put on top of these difficult experiences. Um, so, you know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, captures the essence of how we come to manage these difficult experiences, and life is full of the painful ones. How do we sort of limit the suffering that we experience? Um, let me get, manage this. So, quite often, one particular form of suffering centers on self-recriminations and self-criticism, right? So we push ourselves, we judge ourselves, we obsess on the fact that we're not good enough or we don't have enough. Alternatively, we fight these experiences. Why do I have this spine problem? I don't want to get divorced. This was not what was promised to me, you know? I thought that I was going to do better than my parents, my sibling, right? And we struggle against them. And the book that I'm going to introduce you to uh, it's a self-compassion book. The author, uh, Kristen Neff, defines suffering as pain plus resistance. And I think that's just, that's the most beautiful math, simple math, is you know, pain plus resistance. And this struggle is really what moves us into the suffering. So, so how do we get out? How do we get out of there? So today, the talk is focused on, the series is focused on uh, self-compassion. One tool for counteracting this toll of the, the emotional suffering that we experience. I'm going to go a little beyond self-compassion, as I said, and, and ultimately sort of have a little bit of an exercise here. All right, let's define our terms. First, I said, this is the book. How many people have read this book? One, two, two people. It's a, it's a beautiful book, um, and it's very, uh, uh, it's, it's personal, experiential, moving, uh, and has a lot of practical advice and wisdom. Um, and Kristen Neff is the preeminent scholar on self-compassion in the, in the US. And uh, so how does she define self-compassion? Well, it has three pillars. This is the sort of emblazing this image in your mind. I made it up. It took me a long time. But OK, so it comes from, this just doesn't go up here. I see the problem. So historically. The ideas of self-compassion are rooted in um, Eastern thought. And so Eastern thought, Eastern philosophy. And in the last 15 years, we've imported this in so many different ways. Uh, and the, we've imported content. We, we've built up a contemplative science to really try to understand and scrutinize how these uh, ideas that are millennia old, how they actually operate and how, whether or not they have any generalizable validity to our well-being. Neff, Neff's work and focus on self-compassion 
um, emerged in large part as an antidote to self-esteem. Is there a way to look at the self and to think about the self, right, the me, the I, that does not also involve promoting the self? self Self-esteem is really a double-edged sword. I'm going to talk about double-edged swords. I love the metaphor, right? It's important to have good feelings about ourselves, but we can inflate those feelings quite well. And, you know, Neff and others have argued that the idea of a generation me and the rise of narcissism in this culture has a basis in the self-esteem movement. Everyone should feel good about themselves. Yes, we got them feeling really good. Now they're crazy megalomaniacs, right? So um, <laughs> that, that, that research is actually a little bit murky. It's not as clear as my caricature, but uh, I think it's OK. So let's talk about what it is. Um, so first of all, what is compassion? Self-compassion begins with compassion. And you know, if you're coming to this series, you have an interest in that, and, and you spend a little time maybe thinking about that. Compassion begins with noticing another person's suffering and responding to that suffering with kindness, caring, and sympathy. When we're compassionate to others, we recognize the difficulties that they're going through. And we try to support them in a way that you know, we provide them with empathy. We tell them that it's only human to experience these kinds of things. We normalize it. We accept them for who they are. And we provide them kindness and caring. The idea, you don't have to go far to just add the self. Self-compassion is turning the same lens on ourself. And it begins with noticing our own suffering and being able to key in to these difficult moments in our lives and to actually begin to say, this is a moment of suffering. What are, what are the pillars represent? There are three features of self-compassion. Um, by the way, uh, just as a very brief aside, I'm one of these scientists who loves to like dismantle things that I actually like. So if, you, if you're like, I don't believe this crap, then let's talk. Because I have a lot of ways in which I don't believe it also. But you know, I, I've studied it, and um, I can tell you some of the nuance and where I think things are right and where I think it's sort of misguided. So I just don't want to paint this picture of like self-compassion. It's just the absolute best thing. It's super different from a lot of other things. That may or may not be true. But let's just look at it for what it is, and then sort of we'll talk about what it may not be, too. At least as Neff defines it, and people are thinking about it in the research and clinical communities, there are three elements. The first element is self-kindness, using kind, caring, and gentle words with yourself, essentially treating yourself as you would a dear friend. So a degree of tenderness that offsets how critical and harsh we can be with ourselves. Um, so I want you to think for a moment about all the terrible ways in which we criticize ourselves. You may not have that sort of voice, but I have that voice in my head that I will go to my car no matter how well this goes tonight, and I will just let loose on myself. And it can be, re if, if it doesn't go well, then it's really bad. But you know, like, you know, look at yourself in the mirror. You're bald. You're short. You're, 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 you know, you have bags under your eyes. All this really nasty stuff. 
actually trying to soften some of that voice goes a long way. Now, why, any, any of you guys have ever been in therapy, you'll know why the critic exists or sort of the way psychologists think about what the critic is doing. The critic is the motivator, right? I would not, I am 100% clear, I would not be, you know, wherever I am today, I would not be there if I didn't have the critic saying, go, push, keep going, right? You're not doing a good enough job. This is just the echo chamber of our mind. For the course of evolutionary history, this is the adaptive part of what we do. There's a consequence. The voice hangs around our head. Also, before I came here, I had one of my clients was telling me about a very moving and inspirational speech he gave to his local community, about 500 people. He, got, he was chosen to get up in front of them, give a speech. He said, everyone was crying. And I walked away, and I was just criticizing myself. I was all oh, so you get the point. All right, I'm going to just beat this to death. OK, so um, for some of us, this is the engine that gets us out the door. Um, but the, the motivational drive that can come from this type of criticism can really do us in. So self-kindness is the pillar that allows us to hold our experiences more gently. Remember I said that, hold the experiences more gently because that's going to come up later. Okay. Um, so for those of us who do the self-critical thing, the interesting part is that we would never speak to a friend like this. You just, come on, man, you know, come on, snap out of it. You can do it. Stop being such a baby, right? You just wouldn't. So self-kindness is about showing your, yourself the same tenderness you would others. All right. The second piece you've undoubtedly heard of, it's everywhere. Mindfulness is present moment awareness, seeing things as they are, an, a, acknowledging the stress and anxiety in our lives. So uh, um, Neff has a great quote in her book, you can't heal what you can't feel. Right? So the opposite of mindfulness is often thought of as being, getting lost in the story of your suffering. That also is going to come up later. So instead of being lost in our thoughts and emotions, mindfulness creates space for present moment awareness. It allows you to drop an anchor into your experience, um, and, and, and that becomes a very important feature of the overall construct. The last one, I'm going to say it here, is my favorite. Um, and and this, is, this is a common humanity. And I think one of the defining features of being miserable is a sense of aloneness. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm a relationship researcher, and a lot of the sort of relationship research we end up doing is about how people think about other people. Yeah, sure, we study interactions and all that, but a lot of our time is spent thinking about other people and what their intentions are and what they're going to do. And when we feel this sort of existential isolation that comes through these painful events, you know, the common humanity is the pillar that connects us to everyone else. I am not alone in this divorce. I am not alone having experienced this difficult thing. Others have had this into every life a little rain must fall. I'm not the first, I'm not the last. Whatever your little euphemism is, connect yourself to something larger, that this is part of the pageantry of life. 
And, and I really like that piece of it. This, to me, this matters a lot. All right, let me, are there any questions thus far? We can have questions at the end, but so far, any questions? Sound like my undergraduates, nothing. Okay. <laughs> I gave you my real origin story, but now I want to talk about self-compassion a little bit with respect to divorce and get into some of the weeds here of how we've done this and why I've become such a convert on this topic. Um, how should I define myself? I traditionally was a negative, you've heard about positive psychology maybe. I was a negative psychologist. I used to study, I still do for the most part, what, what, was, what was terrible about divorce? What, what made people have poor outcomes? Why did people get depressed? What negative, savage characteristics do we have that make us feel so badly? And I, I, in the divorce work that we were doing, we consistently came across the same conclusion. Um, about 70% of people whose marriage comes to an end could be characterized as resilient to very resilient. They go through this period of upheaval, but in pretty short order, they're functioning well again or um, you know, better than they actually were. There are about 10% of people, now given how prevalent divorce is, close to 40%, 10% objectively is a large number of people. There are about 10% of people who really bottom out. And, and these are people I can, I can talk to you about. You'll see a little more about what they do later on. But you know, we kept studying these 10%. I was like, I want to study these 70%. Who are the people who are doing well? What are they doing? What are the positive characteristics of these people in their lived experience? And so I had an undergraduate research assistant. Uh, and this was an honors student. And to me, this is the probably, you know, I can put it as the top three best things of working at the university. You get really bright honor students and and this is a study that has played a very important role in my career and I said go find me five positive I don't know anything about positive psychology I sort of do I was supposed to be in the club but I really sort of lost track of it I don't give me five positive psychology concepts you know tell me about their their empirical basis we're going to study them so she came back she she brought me things like awe she brought me gratitude she brought me savoring I can't remember one other, and, and, and then self-compassion. We've done a decent amount of stuff on savoring now, by the way. It's very interesting. You're going to hear a ton more about this concept in the next five years about savoring. Not just from me. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be the new mindfulness, I think. But um, self-compassion, you know, for, for a variety of reasons we don't need to get into, we started looking seriously at self-compassion. And we said, you know, is, would there be a way to identify people who vary in their self-compassion when, the, when a relationship ends, who provide themselves, you know, who, who sort of tick off each one of the pillars? And could we actually take a look at this? All right, it's time for a geeky science uh, sidebar. I have a, if you look at Neff's book, there's, there's a sort of deep fundamental scientific flaw in the book, and, and I w I've said this you know, in exchanges with her, uh, so, so I feel comfortable in video, having it video recorded. Nearly all of the research on self-compassion prior to our study was about done 
asking people how self-compassionate they are. Do you do these kinds of things? And there's an enormous halo. Are you, you know, that, that people just inflate, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a mindfulness person. You know, and then they're cursing and screaming at their kids. You know, or, or you know, I, I, yeah, yeah. how do you ask people, do you do common humanity? Oh yeah, yeah, I locate my, and then they feel really lonely also. So, so asking people about self-compassion is not necessarily a great way to study it, especially since we wanted to study self-compassion and we hadn't even asked people about it because we, we came to the party late. So the approach that we devised gave us an angle into this world that was pretty exciting and new and allowed us to sort of, sort of contribute to the literature in a new way. And I'll tell you what that way is in a second. The other side of it is that there's a lot of tautology, a circularity in positive psychology that happy people feel better. I hate this about psychology. It's like people who are, who are really good at gratitude are happier. Of course they're, they're happy because their life is awesome and they feel grateful for it. And so, I mean, I'm sort of being a negative psychologist again, <laughs> but, but part of it here is that I wanted to step out of the trap of people who are good, do, people who, 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 who we, say, we see doing well are doing well. And one of the things we do, to, to, a strategy we devise to address that is to say, okay, give us a, a small subset of predictors that might predict out people's adjustment. Like we know certain things. We know personality, whether or not they've been depressed, whether or not they were left in the relationship, uh, and, and self-compassion and things called attachment anxiety. And let's pit them against each other and see what wins the day. To me, that's more of a compelling uh, these things are all correlated. So given the correlation across all of these things, which one sort of rules here? That's an interesting question. It might be a little bit of happy people do well, but um, that's a little bit of, you know, so that's how we set it up. Okay, so please, this, this is how we did the study. Um, so we had a, a, a group of 109 people in Tucson who had experienced a recent marital separation. So these were people, um, in their late 30s, early 40s, and we had them in within a couple of months of their separation. So this is a divorce study, but really it's a study of adjustment to the end of your marriage. It's actually, studying legal divorce is a bad way to study this adjustment process. All of you know it, it sort of takes a long time to get divorced in many, in many situations. So we study people right after their separation, and we bring them into the lab, and in this particular study, well, over 100 people, I think I mentioned that, but. Um, we do all kinds of things with them. Hook them up to um, you, you know, our cardiovascular, uh, physiological equipment, measure their stress reactivity, um, and we get them to report on, fill out self-report questionnaires. But we also do this. We get them to think about their relationship. Think about their relationship. Think about their former partner. And then we hand them this voice recorder, and, they, and we say, speak continuously for four minutes about the end of your relationship. So we create, catch a stream of consciousness recording about their sort of state of mind, the discourse with respect to their separation. Okay, so it becomes, it becomes a thing that exists, a transcript. And we can do all kinds of fun things with this transcript. We can uh, analyze the specific words that people use which I actually show you in a minute, or we can look over and sort of get the gestalt, gestalt consensus of what's going on in, in, the, in the transcript. So what we did was 
we had a team of undergraduates, oh, this is a little hacked up. We had a team of undergraduates go to the transcripts and code them for self-compassion. And all we did was take Neff's, take Neff's self-compassion scale, and this is, you know, when things are difficult, I provide, uh, I provide myself with kindness. And we flipped it. When things are difficult, this person provides him or herself with kindness. And our undergraduate readers judged whether or not people were self-compassionate. So you'll see here are our three pillars, and these are high versus low scores. I'm going to glance over this. i can happy to send people this. We only have about 10 minutes of Dave talk time left. I want to show you some other things that are interesting. So take my word for it that we are able to judge whether or not we see self-compassion. And the question is, there's reliability. Can a bunch of people see it? And there's validity. Does it mean anything? And the punchline of this paper, which is titled, When Leaving Your Ex, Love Yourself, Ob Observational Ratings, Observational Ratings, not Self-Report, of Self-Compassion, Predict the Course of Emotional Recovery. You can't really see, this is not really, um, oh, it's cut off. I can't even see it on here. People with high self-compassion, this is the how much emotional uh, distress and suffering they're having about their separation. People with high self-compassion are coded as entering the study with less distress. So that's the good does better, right? And over time, this, this change, this endpoint difference is meaningful. So people with high, high, low self-compassion scores come down, same rate, some regression to the mean, and they start creeping back up. So the, 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 the screen artifact is not illustrating what is a big effect, what is a meaningful effect here. So this was the, real, real evident, the first real evidence we had. We've replicated the reliability finding. I have a, a, a so you've maybe heard that there's a crisis in psychology about all science, whether or not effects replicate. We are actually going out and trying to do this in another sample. We know we can reliably see it. And I have a, a PhD student whose entire career depends on if she finishes the study. Not whether or not she shows me about self-compassion. That's a scientific question, right? But she's got to do it. So I was hoping to have it today. But we're doing it again and trying to follow up. All right. I have like five more minutes. So this part's going to feel rushed. But um, maybe I go just a little bit longer. We have until 6.30, so I just push it a little bit. Because I want to tell you about these two interesting things. I think if you wanted to go five, we could do what we did five minutes at the beginning. OK. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So this, as part of that study, one of the things that we did was, actually, I'm going to just, uh, part of that study, well, I'm trying to figure out how to cut off a little bit. Part of the study, one of the things we did was uh, experiment, a true experiment. So after we collected all this data, we randomly assigned people to engage in uh, experimental intervention called expressive writing. So it's designed to improve the course of adjustment to stressful life events. And what people do is they write 20 minutes a day for three consecutive days about their deeply held emotional uh, experiences. In this case, we got them writing with respect to their divorce. Now, one of the difficulties the opposite of mindfulness 
really the opposite of self-compassion is this psychological uh, characteristic we refer to as rumination, just like a cow going over and over and over. Rumination is a key cognitive vulnerability for um, depression, especially prevalent thought. There is some argument that rumination, especially prevalent in women, that rumination may explain some of the differences in rates of depression between men and women. Um, so we were very interested in studying rumination. And this part I'm going to cut through because we don't really need it. Uh, uh, one thing I'll show you here. This is a transcript from the same task. The content doesn't even matter. But um, it's very high in over-involvement, rumination, getting connected or too attached to your experience. Don't even worry about reading it, but I did this fancy thing. This is all the eyes. I, 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 me, I, I, me, myself, and I. That's some of the defining, that is a defining element of this psychological tendency. So this is a blood pressure finding. Okay, so now on to the experimental finding about the writing. So I, I got a pretty decent sized grant from the National Institute of Aging to improve the course of these people's, uh, uh, the, these people's adjustment. And we totally missed the boat here. Uh, actually, we have new work saying it may not have been a complete failure. But we found that relative to actually just writing about how you were spending your day, so how did you spend your time and how will you spend your time, people, there was no main effect for people in the experimental writing condition. On average, they didn't get better. And what we found is that this variable rumination turned out to be a key key moderator of the outcome. And for people who self-reported that they had this psychological tendency, when they were assigned to our experimental writing, they got worse. This is the same emotional distress scale. So we didn't make people better, but for some people, they got worse. And this is worse among our ruminators. This is the ruminators when they were assigned to expressive writing. And there are all kinds of extensions of this that I would love to tell you about. Because one of the things we found were the very same people who were assigned to the control writing later on actually did the best. And so that if you have this tendency to go over and over things, but you're actually assigned to a condition that maybe gets you out of your head and stops you thinking through all this stuff and just says, focus on how you're going to spend your time and set a schedule and maybe go do it. Uh, this seems to make a world of difference. And we've tried to follow this up, not to much avail in all kinds of different ways. Uh, I mean, like getting the grant funding for it. So uh, this to us has been one of the, the biggest discoveries. It turns out, I'll just tell you this one last thing, and then we'll, we'll do a little activity. It turns out that when you break this down, we had two types of expressive writing. One was just the emotional writing. The other kind was where people focused on creating a story about their separation, event, separation experience, creating a coherent narrative. Those people tended to do OK. And we're, we're also trying to follow this up. Creation of narrative, the making of meaning, is a powerful tool here. All right. One exercise for us, five minutes, and then we'll take questions. So let's just go through it uh, quickly. And then we can, uh, well, it's no more quickly than five minutes and 20 seconds. But try, try to do this. Just sort of cent center yourself here 
and hear Kristen Ness' voice. Um, much props to her for the excellent audio on her website, selfcompassion.org, and um, there are a lot of super tools uh, out there. So this is one of them, and just to give you a flavor, uh, I'll play it. This practice is called the self-compassion break, and it's something you can do anytime during the day or at night when you need a little self-compassion. So to practice this exercise, we actually need to call up a little suffering. So I invite you to think about a situation in your life right now that is difficult for you. Maybe you're feeling stress, or you're having a relationship problem, or you're worried about something that might happen. And if I even think of something that is difficult, but not overwhelmingly difficult, especially if you're new to practicing the self-compassion break. So finding a situation and getting in touch with it What's going on? What happened? Or what might happen? Who said what? Really bring the situation to life in your mind's eye. And then I'm going to be saying a series of phrases that are designed to help us remember the three components of self-compassion when we need it most. So the first phrase is, this is a moment of suffering, right? We're bringing mindful awareness to the fact that suffering is present. And I'd invite you to find some language that speaks to you, something like, this is really hard right now, or, I'm really struggling. We're actually turning toward our difficulty, acknowledging it, naming it. This is a moment of suffering. The second phrase is, suffering is a part of life. Okay, we're reminding ourselves of our common humanity. Suffering is a part of life. And again, finding language that speaks to you. It may be something like, it's not abnormal to feel this way. Many people are going through similar situations. Right, the degree of suffering may be different. The flavor of suffering may be different. But suffering is a part of life part of being human. And then the third phrase is, may I be kind to myself in this moment. And to support bringing kindness to yourself, I'd invite you to perhaps put your hands over your heart or some other place on your body that feels soothing and comforting. Feeling the warmth of your hand, the gentle touch. Letting those feelings of care stream through your fingers. 
kind to myself. And using any language that supports that sense of kindness. Perhaps language you would use with a good friend you cared about who was going through a very similar situation. You know, maybe something like, I'm here for you. It's going to be okay. I care about you. You can even try using a diminutive if that feels comfortable. No, darling, I'm so sorry. Or you can try calling yourself by your first name. Anything that feels natural to express your deep wish that you be well and happy and free from suffering. then letting go of the practice and noticing how your body feels right now. Allowing any sensations to be just as they are. Allowing yourself to be just as you are in this moment. That's all I have. So thank you so much for your attention. I think there's a few minutes for questions. The Center for Compassion Science really um, exists with our support in the community. So however you can help it, uh, I would urge you to do so. And coming out is a big way forward. So um, thank you. And this is everyone I work with and all the funding sources. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your attention and time. Thank, thank you. you very much.